0: Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, Nick and I talk to Professor Mark Schulz about what we can learn from the world's longest study on happiness and well-being about human flourishing. Mark is Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, an eight-decade-old longitudinal study of individuals and families, and he's Professor of Psychology at Mawr College. He's also a clinical psychologist and a practicing therapist with postdoctoral training in health and clinical psychology at Harvard Medical School. He's the author of numerous publications and a co-editor of two books, and he's co-author with Robert Waldinger of the recently published The Good Life and How to Live It, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness. That was published late last year, and the themes from that book are the key focus of this conversation today. There are many key conversation points here that are directly connected with human flourishing, Some of the most important ones are what we can learn from the Harvard study of adult development about human flourishing, well-being and happiness, practical strategies for flourishing informed by the study, why good relationships are the most important factor for flourishing. This is the key of that book and the main point that emerges from that study. And one important quote from that book is the following, if we had to take all 84 years of the Harvard study and boil it down to a single principle for living, it would be this. Good relationships keep us healthier and happier, period. We discuss this and what elements are the most important for cultivating the kinds of relationships that most support flourishing. We look at the concept of social fitness, the ability to engage in healthy and productive personal and professional relationships, and why Mark and Robert argue that this is at least as important for our well-being as physical and mental fitness. We talk about how to avoid regret based on the many people I interviewed throughout this study, why we are terrible at what's called effective forecasting, knowing and predicting what is good for us and will make us happy, and some effective strategies for improving our effective forecasting. Why it's bad for flourishing to turn pursuits of achievements, money, and status into ends in themselves, rather than means to other ends that better support flourishing, such as building good relationships, and effective ways to maintain a healthier attitude towards such pursuits, and why, quote, another quote from their book, why, quote, a good life is forged from precisely the things that make it hard, end quote, such as the growth, new perspectives, and relationships that emerge from difficult experiences. It's a great conversation, and this book will, I'm sure, be one of the most important books on human flourishing to be published in the coming years. We hope you really enjoy it. This is our conversation with Professor Mark Schultz.
1: Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Hey, Mark. I'm good.
2: Nice to meet you, Nick and John. Pleasure to meet you. Are you uh,
1: sitting in the main line right now? I'm sitting not far from the Shipley
2: School, Nick. So I I wondered if you had made that connection. What a small world. I did. And you look really familiar to me. Is it possible we've met somewhere along the way?
1: Uh, I'm trying to think of where it might have been or how it might have been. So I I was at Shipley full time for about a year and a half. I now consult Mm -hmm. for them and kind of move around Mm -hmm. as a nomad. But I've definitely walked around Bryn Mawr's campus a bunch of different times. And I don't know if you've been over to our campus or... You know, I don't know yeah, if you my know, office
2: is right next to the upper school, so it may just be that we've oh,
1: Okay. That could be. That could be. Yeah. yeah. And then it was funny when I started reading the book, that very, very first story. So I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan. So the very first um, story is about the couple that's located in Grand Rapids. And in between right. that and Bryn Mawr, I said, What a small world it is. Yeah,
2: so, lots of connections. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you but, guys for reaching out. So oh, it's our, our pleasure. Thank We're you, really man. Glad, glad to have you. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, no, am yeah. stoked for this conversation. I mean, this book, I mean, this book's amazing in so many ways, but I, I really think we work on research and human flourishing and I think this is gonna be one of the most important books to come out on that theme for years
2: to come. It's oh, such you. an important study. Agreed. John, you got one of those English versions of the book. Where did you get it from? <laughs> <laughs> is that does that look different? Huh? Yeah.
0: Actually, I was kindly sent it from the publisher. From the UK you, publisher. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Must have been. Yeah, a penguin, yeah, I guess. Exactly. It must be penguin books, right? Yeah. So, right. Okay. I haven't, yeah. I wondered why it was written in British English. (laughs) So, so, yeah.
1: So, great. Yeah. Really enjoyed it and stoked to have this. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're really excited about this market.
2: Where are each of you? So, Nick, where are you right now? So, at the
1: moment, I'm sitting in our condo on 13th and Bainbridge. So, I'm in Philly. Okay.
0: Okay. And John? Uh, I'm in Oxford in the UK right now. Okay. I've Uh, heard of that. Like Nick, I'm. Like Nick, I'm nomadic. I currently, I, I guess, I live mostly at the moment between London and Boston. Okay. Do some work with the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard. Yeah. Where obviously your book will be a huge subject of conversation in the years to come. Yeah. Neat. So
2: Neat. You're We're headed to. We'll be in England for a publicity tour in April, I think, for a week of publicity in oh, London. Great. Manchester. I think is the plan. So. Well,
0: please email me. I'd love to meet in person. That'd be great if you have time. I'm sure your schedule's packed. The amount of podcast interviews you've done lately, because I've listened to a bunch of them. Yeah, yeah we've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> we've been busy yeah. 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 So, yeah. Awesome. Mark, it's an absolute pleasure. Honour to have you with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us. And you're Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, an 80-year-long, extremely rigorous research study, which has followed many people throughout their entire lives for two generations, and has provided groundbreaking research to what it means to lead a good life. Could you please give us a brief overview of the study, its aims, and some of its key
2: findings? Sure. Happy to. Let me also just say thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be with you guys. So this is a remarkable study that began in the 1930s, long before I was involved in it. And it began with 724 young men and late adolescents. Two-thirds of the sample were boys that were growing up in Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Most of them were children of immigrants, living in tenements closely together with large families and facing real challenges in their lives. And then roughly across the city in Boston, just outside in Cambridge, where the remaining one-third who were students at Harvard. They were sophomores that were introduced to the study in consecutive years. And both of those cohorts have been followed since that time, the 1930s, through their entire lives to the end of their life. Along the way, we started to include their wives, and we're now working with the children, the more than 1,300 children of those original participants. Mm. And it was a study from the beginning focused on what helps us flourish in life, the kinds of factors both in your personality and your environment that might contribute to human health and happiness. Fantastic.
0: And let's also dig into one one key component of the study, the study of adult development. So people Mm -hmm. don't typically think of adults as developing. (laughs) We have this view that you develop, break your adolescence, then you reach adulthood, and you're fully developed. right? So can
2: you tell us about this field, the field of adult development? Yeah, so there were two quite remarkable. things about the study from the beginning one was this focus on flourishing which was very unusual and remember this is the end of the depression the eve of world war ii so this was an unusual study to focus on the positive side of life as opposed to just problems but the other aspect of the study that was innovative certainly for its time and continued to be unfortunately for many decades but just the notion that you're talking about john that we had this idea that people are fully formed by the time they're done adolescence and that's the way they were going to be throughout their adulthood But unfortunately, we hadn't systematically studied this. So both of these studies began with adolescents and followed them through their adulthood and have identified ways in which people normatively change. So on average, everyone changes in a similar way across their lifespan. So for example, from middle age to adulthood to late life, we grow happier, actually, which is quite an extraordinary change when you think about the challenges that we face as we age. But there are other changes that we pick up as well. And then people have divergent paths, their own unique changes. So people who found very difficult challenges in their childhood, maybe had some troubles at the beginning of their adulthood, found a path in life that led them to more happiness and satisfaction as they grew older. So we do develop as adults, we develop in interesting and important ways. And there are certain things that mature as we age, including the ways that we might, for example, deal with emotions in our life. Awesome.
0: Perfect. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning how rigorous this study is. So, I mean, in your book, I was quite taken with this. You're taking health records, dental records, DNA samples. You even have 25 brains that participants have donated. So, I mean, Incredible. could you just say a little bit about the kind of studies you're doing of, of these yeah. individuals throughout their lives? So, the
2: study from its beginning was really interested in the lived experience of people. So, at the start of the study, both cohorts The folks were visited in their homes, the researchers talked to their parents, observed the conditions that the participants had grown up in, lots of interviews along the way, including at the very beginning, and also careful observations. So we've brought folks in with their partners and observed the way that they interact with them. We often introduce a challenge to them to see how they navigate challenges or stress in their life, More recently we've included brain scans and blood assays, and we're trying to address a number of important questions with this unique sample. But one of the constant central elements has always been this idea of what elements are connected to thriving. So we try and get at that in a bunch of ways, not just what people say, but looking at how they behave, how they recover when they're stressed, all sorts of things along the way.
1: So we're going to get to these elements in just a minute, or or maybe even element, because there's clearly a core theme, right, that is elicited from the study and, and from the book. But before we do that, if we can just double click on language here a little bit, because it's easy to go back and forth between happiness, well-being, thriving, flourishing. We do the same thing. And yet, obviously, the title of the show focuses on flourishing. How do you and the study conceptualize that? Is it pretty typical to what you kind of see out from other
2: models? Do you have any deviations? How do you think about flourishing? So when we think about, we call it the good life, but I think you could certainly use the language of flourishing and a vital life, we think about really two components. One is a momentary experience of joy and happiness, those kinds of positive emotions in which we feel uplifted and energized. And those are fleeting feelings. We can't feel happy or joy all the time. In fact, yeah. if we're going to experience joy and happiness, we also have to be ready to experience challenge and sadness as well. So that's the kind of momentary part of what we think about as the good life. The other aspect is a broader, more sustained feeling or attitude, which is that your life has meaning and purpose, that when you wake up in the morning, you have a sense that there's something important that you're going to do. And that life is typically embedded in connections with others. That's really the critical bottom line that we found in our research after all of these years is the importance of connections. So I would say a flourishing or a good life includes certainly joy and happiness, moments of sorrow and challenge as well. That's part of the deal that we get when we lean into life. But it also includes a sense that life is good and meaningful in a certain way. A teeter-totter effect.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a consistent theme across almost, I bet, almost every episode we've had that willingness, I like how you said it, to kind of lean into life and experience the richness of all that it brings.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things you learn very quickly studying whole lives is that the idea that stuff happens, that we're going to face challenges, is a truism that these young people, when they were at Harvard, for example, in the 1930s, World War II began, 91% of them served in the military wasn't something they expected when they were younger. They had just come out of the throes of the depression. So life throws lots of stuff at us. And I think it's people who are able to lean in and to grow from those experiences with the right resources. That's been an important theme as well as we look at our participants. Well, let's dig into that a bit more then, Mark. Because
0: yeah, yeah, you emphasize in the book that a good life is forged from precisely the things that make it hard, such as the growth, new perspectives, and relationships that can emerge as a result of difficult experiences. So, One example, you have one of your participants, she went through a dreadful divorce and was in a very difficult place for a few years, but then met a second husband, the man who became a second husband, and claimed later that she grew from this experience and was grateful for it, even though it was extremely difficult at the time. So, What would you say is the role of difficult experiences in the good life after this research? And Do you have any advice for people, general advice when they're faced with difficult
2: experiences, how they can see this in the context of growth or flourishing? I think the first thing is really to recognize that it's normal to experience challenge in life. No one has days filled only with happiness and joy and moments of perfect connection. That Life is challenging, and relationships, which we think are the core of a flourishing life, are also can be challenging. They're unpredictable and they're hard to control. So I think the first recognition is that if you're experiencing challenge, you have lots of company, that we all experience challenges. The trick, I think, is trying to leverage the resources that one might have. And often those resources are in the form of connections that you have to others. People help us get through difficult times in a number of ways. They help us deal with our emotions. They give us good ideas about ways to move forward. They help call us out when we're not figuring out an important aspect of the problem. You know, Mark, you're just missing this piece. It's really important. Friends do that for us. People that we're close to do that for us. And with those resources, we have the opportunity to learn new things. So what we find in our participants, both the original participants and now the children of those original participants, is that you can meet challenges in ways that sometimes surprise you and and allow you to grow new capacities and to find new meaning. So people find that after terrible losses, after fighting in the military and combat situations that they couldn't imagine that they would be in. And they were worried about their life on a daily basis. So people can grow from those kinds of challenges, for sure. So perhaps that connects more then with
0: your kind of conception of flourishing, because you define the book as becoming, right? So mm-hmm. it says it emphasizes you, actually, in the books. Obviously, the book's written by you and Robert Waldinger. It says, Mark is particularly fond of the terms thriving and flourishing, because they refer to a, a state of becoming rather than just a mood. So is, is this process of growth through difficult experiences important to that idea of flourishing as
2: becoming? I think that is part of it, although we can grow and evolve in all circumstances, right? Hopefully our life isn't always about challenge and meeting challenge, but this idea about sort of making this into an activity or a process rather than an outcome is important because I think today... There are a lot of messages that we're bombarded with that tell us that if we just get here, everything will be great. If we just acquire that fancy car or we get that new job or we earn a certain amount of money, that we will have arrived. And that notion... I think people find lacking when they get that new car and they're in that new position. There's still things that they may want and they may feel stuck, in fact, and surprised that it doesn't feel the way that they were led to believe. So this notion of thriving and moving and aspiring and growing is really important, I think. And the idea of thriving is just that, that hopefully we're all going to thrive and continue to strive in that way until the end of our lives. That's the only thing we know for certain is that at one point our lives will end.
1: It's interesting. I love to start double-clicking on types of relationships, if we Mm -hmm. could. And in the book, you mentioned that really relationships of all types contribute to living healthier, happier lives. Maybe we could start simply, do you tend to kind of categorize these relationships, these main sort of buckets, if
2: you will, and then I'd like to
1: double-click on one or two of those. So.
2: It's relationships of all types, and that's really important that relationships give us so many things that it would be surprising we can get all that we need from one person. So folks that aren't in an intimate relationship or had a failed marriage, there are other ways to get the benefits that relationships give us. So the simple taxonomy of relationships is to think about close intimate ones, family relationships, friends co-workers, neighbors, people in the more peripheral parts of your network, which are still important, those connections. But it also helps to think about the things that relationships can give you, the kind of functions that they serve. So I think we talked a little bit already about the way relationships help us navigate stress. So the kind of support that comes from that is emotional support. It could be instrumental support. People do things for us that are important to us when we're under stress. So they take us to the doctor. Maybe they feed us or do our laundry if we need that kind of help people have ideas that we may not have, so they may expose us to a new way of handling something or a particular area of expertise that we require. So relationships give us many things, and that's another way to think about how to group them as the types of support that you're getting. One of the things that I like to talk about, because it really is relationships of all kind, Those relationships that we think are distant and maybe not so important, like strangers we meet on the street or Nick, we talked before we started about we think we may have run into each other in some way, but maybe we didn't have that conversation that would have led to a real connection. So talking to strangers, talking to the person who serves you coffee. Those kinds of encounters, even if people are not intensely close to, can remind us of just being human and give us little charges of connection that I think are really important to us as well. So when we say all relationships are important, we really mean that. So that's what I wanted to double click on because we kind of tie it in with this
1: idea of maybe distress tolerance or enduring unpleasantness. And you mentioned earlier that relationships, sure, they're huge for social support and managing stress. They also can be Let's be honest, causes of stress at times, right? So, when you talk about the essence of becoming, right, as a primary component of flourishing, it seems like there's a parallel with relationships as well, that they are becoming those things that could contribute to the good life, could help us be healthier. And at the same time, it seems that part of that process of them becoming that thing, that contributing factor, often involves valleys not just peaks, right? And so I I once interviewed Lydia Denworth, who's written a really wonderful book on the science of friendship. She's also a local Philly, by the way. She's a Shipley grad. And she talks a little bit about ambivalent relationships and how there's some relationships or friendships specifically that if there's really kind of any amount of unpleasantness, let's say, or not just tension, but maybe disdain, that those can in some ways be harmful. And so I'd I'd just like to tease out some of those tensions
2: a little bit. And that's why I was interested in the of all kinds comment. Yeah. So that's another way to type relationships, right? The degree to Mm -hmm. which it's filled with conflict versus support. And And what I would say is that it's inevitable in almost every relationship that we're going to have differences with the person that we're in relationship with. We're different people. We have different priorities. Our needs shift. One of the amazing things about relationships is they're dynamic. And over time, we change. Each of the individuals in that relationship change. So conflict is almost inevitable in all relationships. It's really how we navigate and handle that conflict. That's the key part. But good relationships are filled with support and some element of reciprocity that we're giving Mm -hmm. things and getting back things like the support that we're talking about. Really important and strong relationships to have a sense that the person has your back. The question we asked in the study was in the middle of the night, if you're sick or scared, do you have someone you can call? So it's that kind of connection that's really particularly important to have in your life. And relationships that don't work well, so people who are in bad marriages for long lengths of time, they're likely to not reap some of the benefits that we're talking about. In fact, that's probably going to be tied to problems in your health and certainly your emotional well-being as well. And I'll just give you one fascinating example. If we look at couple relationships, there are studies that are done, believe it or not, in which people purposely, scientists, psychologists, give people wounds. It's a little puncture wound that they put on the arm. This is
1: fascinating, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, really interesting study. This is Janice Kiko Glazer and her husband Ronald Glazer did this work. And you can do these wounds that are kind of standardized across people and then you can watch how quickly the wounds heal. And the rate of healing is related to the quality of a person's marriage. So for people who are in satisfying lower conflict marriages, those wounds will heal quicker, which is extraordinary. The opposite is also true. If you're in an unsatisfying, highly conflictual marriage, lots of tension, those wounds will take longer to heal. And we think it's not limited, of course, just to wound healing. There are many other physical implications of relationships that are filled with tension as well.
1: Do you know or have you interacted with Stephen Post at all? Why good things happen to good people? I don't know him. Got yeah. It. Just occurs to me. I'd love to get him on the show at some point. You mentioned reciprocity, right? And, and the book is really mm-hmm. about generally giving behaviors whether that's generativity or giving loyalty or giving love uh, or I, giving I know gratitude yeah right yeah, and it, it it seems like that's another really specific example of that sort of behavior right and how it actually somewhat counterintuitively
2: benefits the giver right so what we find in research on gratitude is that certainly we appreciate being appreciated or when people do nice things for us but it turns out that the giver as you're suggesting nick also reaps benefits. And this is something that ancient wisdom has talked about. Religious traditions have talked about how the giver reaps benefits. And I think scientific research is suggesting that's true. But this idea of reciprocity is also really important. It's hard to keep giving and giving if you're not getting something back in relationships. So I I think it's important, the two-way piece of it. So
1: one more question before John jumps back in. Do you think, because that now I'm going to sort of Adam Grant, givers, takers, matchers, and, and creating a culture of asking, and we just did an activity at Shipley around this the other day. In your view, do good, healthy, positive relationships involve a willingness to ask, right, so that both parties have the opportunity to give?
2: I think that's an important thing to be clear about one's needs and uh, be able to Mm. express them clearly. We're really talking about all kinds of relationships. So I'm also talking about parents with kids Mm. and kids may may not be in that same position when there's hierarchy and power in a relationship, different rules apply. So there's a different kind of reciprocity in those kinds of relationships, right? And it, it changes as kids grow. Adolescence is very different than childhood. So I want, for sure, people to be able to be clear about their needs and to ask for things that are important to them. But some relationships have hierarchies where that's difficult yeah. to do. Work relationships may be similar as well. That makes sense. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So I want to dig in a bit more to this idea that relationships of all kinds are super important here, Mark, because just so we can clarify, nonetheless, certain features of relationships that are particularly important for them to really contribute towards your health right. and happiness. And you've mentioned some, like the emotionally fulfilling perhaps, and you have you know, all these parts in your chapter on social fitness, which we'll dig into in a moment. So for example, do you get safety and security, learning and growth, emotional closeness, identity, affirmation, help, fun and relaxation, all these kinds of things. So is it the case that relationships of all kinds are important as long as they are fulfilling some of these really
2: important criteria for well-being? I think if we take this transactional view that that's what relationships give us, not all relationships give us all of those things, but the relationships that we value that are going to be energizing and important to us in life, give us some of those pieces. That's the elements that make relationships so important and so life-affirming. So a really critical idea, right? I, I don't know that we've had a chance really to summarize it, but when we look at all the research we've done, and we also go outside of our study because you don't want to rely on one single study, no matter how interesting it is. What we find is critical is that relationships keep us happy and healthy throughout the lifespan. So a really critical piece. And it's those elements, John, that you just recited that we talk about in the book, are the kind of life-giving elements we think of relationships. Mm -hmm. Great.
1: Hi friends, Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, They need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well being and anti fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com.
0: Let's dig in deeply then to this concept of social fitness. You you described this in the book as the, quote, massively important concept of social fitness. So we might define it as the ability to engage in healthy and productive personal and professional relationships. And I love this chapter. It's full of these practical exercises. I did a few of them this morning. Yeah, they're they're wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, you identify friends and family that really contribute positively to your well-being and then think about how you can cultivate those relationships more. So you argue that social fitness is As important for our well-being as physical fitness. So can you tell us what exactly social fitness is and why it's so
2: important and some key ways to build it? Yeah. So, I mean, social fitness is how we engage with others, how we make our connections with others, how we maintain those relationships. And the idea we mean it in 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 all its metaphorical ways that if we don't maintain our social fitness relationships tend to wither. So we all have friends that we were very close to that we haven't stayed in touch with and we regret that. We lament that. In fact, our participants in their 80s when we ask them about their regrets, Most of their regrets centered around lost relationships or not doing enough in relationships that were important to them. So we think it's important to lean into relationships and to care for them in the way that we might care for our physical fitness. So we begin with kinds of assessments of what your social universe looks like, what relationships are working well. Are you seeing those people enough in your life? Would you like to spend more time with them? So could you increase the frequency or amount of time that you spend with them? And then also thinking hard about the harder side, which is the relationships that feel stuck or depleting in some way, but are still important to you that you want to do something about. And we describe a number of ways that you might go about trying to repair relationships that have maybe had a conflict or falling out in the past. Or maybe it's just been that you're busy. You've been raising kids and life has just been too busy, or the job has kept you focused on that as opposed to other things. It always begins with intention and letting people know. John, Nick, you know, I really enjoy this. I'd love to spend some more time talking. Could we find a date to get together? And we do that with friends. We can do that with relatives. Texting is a great first way to do it. It's a really low bar to make that connection. I'm thinking about you. I wish we could spend more time than we've been spending or get back to where we were before. So letting people know is really critical. And then there are steps that we can all take in relationships that are fraught or filled with lots of emotions. And it often involves slowing down the conversation in some way and finding the right place and space in our life to have that conversation because it's hard to do it when we're stressed and it's the end of the day and our kids are yelling and we need to take care of things in the house, right? We want to find the right time as well. So those are some of the ideas that we're talking about around social fitness, but it's really also prioritizing that part of our life as opposed to getting distracted by the other things that call out for our attention, work, the internet, social media, all those things that keep buzzing in our pockets all of the time.
1: For what it's worth, Mark, that particular chapter and that topic actually inspired me to just make some phone calls, leave some voicemails and reach out to some people. I, I wondered if you just, I think it's such a great visual, the four quadrants, frequency, energizing, depleting, just kind of explain that for the audience a little bit so they can get a visual yeah. and, and sort of charting yeah. out, right? It's kind of a dashboard almost for your relationship. So exactly. just, I thought that exactly. had a lot of utility.
2: Well, I appreciate hearing that, Nick. When we thought about, it, we thought that this is so simple—just making yeah. this two-dimensional space. And you know, we have a video, so I'm going to make those that sort are of two-dimensional space there that we have. And it's really about how energizing or depleting relationships are and how frequently you see those people and we we think about this as our social universe so you know on a daily basis you're likely to include people from work that you see frequently some of them might be uplifting and energizing and some of them may in fact be depleting you might have a partner that you see regularly so the first step is really mapping out where those people fit in that two-dimensional grid and it's really an exercise in the service of reflection this is a book that I believes strongly that an examine life is a good thing to do do. and this is a way of reflecting and as nick i love that language of sort of making a dashboard of what your social fitness or universe is like that's the first start meta awareness awesome. yeah 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 it's yeah great. thinking at that next level exactly
0: yeah yeah absolutely yeah i should actually follow that up mark when i was reading that section this morning i also texted a few friends <laughs> they weren't they weren't long lost friends i haven't spoken to in a while but i was like no i should follow that person
2: up we didn't Well, you guys, you guys might also know that right before the book came out, the book came out January 10th. The New York Times devoted seven days to a kind of happiness challenge. And one of the days was to make an eight-minute phone call. And we went back and forth about how long it should be. Eight minutes isn't a kind of sacrosanct or research-based rule. But the idea is that the bar should be low for reaching out. And if you start small with a text, a brief phone call, then it's easier to follow up. But if you don't do it, you just don't maintain that connection. So we really want to make that bar small. So I love hearing you guys are reaching out to, to people. It's great. Love it about.
1: seems like I've always given this. Excuse, I guess it's an excuse, excuse, rationale, whatever you want to call it. And I think there's something to be said for this, that I take some pride in relationships where it feels like the frequency isn't there. But when you come back together, when you get on the phone, when you finally have that hangout once a year, once every couple of years, whatever it is, it's like no time has passed and you pick up right where you left off. And I think that's yeah. a beautiful thing. I think the book and the quadrant and the the idea of social fitness just helped me think, well, let's not hope that that happens. And let's be a little bit more intentional about trying to make sure I'm not relying on that to happen, right?
2: That's exactly right. Because the risk is that that relationship will wither it'll become three years or four years and suddenly you've lost that connection. I do think, can we say this in the book? And it's one of those moments when we wrote it, we thought, yeah, this is true, that sometimes there are people that we don't see frequently. Maybe we see them every year or every two years, and maybe that's the right amount. Maybe that's mm. about what we need in that relationship. It's fun, it's joyous, but it's also work that we don't want to put in on a daily basis. And that's okay, too, as long as we have a larger network of connections that maybe we want to see more frequently as well. Awesome. So, I mean, one of the things you mentioned then in your comments, but also in the book, is that
0: one of the obstacles towards focusing on relationships or that's something that people often make an obstacle is that they focus more on work in particular, achievements, money, and so on. And You say that this point that really resonated with me, but because it connects well with an important part of research on flourishing where you say, people often turn their pursuits of achievements, money, and status into ends in, in themselves rather than means to ends that are more supportive of flourishing, such as building good relationships. Yep. Now, I flag this because in research on flourishing, Methodology is typically to identify areas of life that are ends in themselves, like good relationships, happiness, life satisfaction, fulfillment of potential, flow, and so on. So, On the basis of the Harvard study, what are some effective ways to maintain a healthy and non-excessive attitude towards the pursuit of achievements, money, status, and so on, such that these support flourishing rather than risk hindering it?
2: Yeah. So a few ideas. We'll start with the idea that the research is pretty clear here. It's it's very complicated research, but looking at the connection between money and happiness, the most cited study suggests in the United States, this is a few years ago, but it's essentially the middle class average income in the United States. Up to that point, there's a modest relationship between happiness and income. As you get a little bit more income up to 75000 your happiness increases. Makes sense if you think about it, that it provides for your basic needs, food, shelter in the United States, especially important, it provides health care. So you have a little more control over life and your subsistence needs are met. After that, the relationship between happiness and income or wealth is pretty modest or non-existent in almost every study. So I think that's an important recognition to make. The other one is if we think about achievement, if we think about those moments when we're proud, we find meaning in what we do often the biggest pleasure around that achievement is the pleasure that we experience in relation to other people. So we're excited because people who care about us are excited. So they'll say, you know, John, it's incredible that you've been doing this podcast. We're so proud of you. That feeling is something that we only can experience in connection with others. Achievements by themselves turn out to be somewhat shallow because there's always, unfortunately, the next level of achievement, right? So after you've made it here... There's always something afterwards that's going to be more challenging to pursue. And the idea that there can be opportunities further down in the journey, that's a good thing that you're not at an end point. But the idea that once I get to that level, that everything will be set, that's the idea that I think ends up being shallow and disappointing for people. We have tried Terms or ways of talking about it, like it's the journey that's important. But the journey is important when it comes to achievement and the things that are most meaningful. The third thing I would say, John, about this is that achievements are things that really should center around what we think is meaningful and what we prioritize as a value for us. So if the most important thing in my life is raising a family and teaching my children really good values and helping them navigate life so that they'll be happy and flourish as adults. I want to devote time into that, and I should feel my most pride when I'm doing that well and I can see them well on their way to a productive and happy adult. So our achievements are really driven by what we think is important in life. So we wrote a book. Our goal was to bring these studies that are hidden in academic journals to a popular audience. So we're excited that the book is actually selling, that people are reading it and telling us that they find it helpful. That was the goal that we had. And we feel a sense of fulfillment because that goal was our priority there you know, in a year or two, people may not continue to talk about this book. It may be forgotten or less important or less noteworthy. And that's just something that we recognize we need to continue with our goal, which is to get a message out that we think is helpful to people.
1: So that uh, you just beautifully brought us to really two follow up questions here. One is regret And one is about affective forecasting, right? So what we're Mm -hmm. hearing, I'm hearing like Sonia leibor myths of happiness. We get this wrong all the time, right? We're pretty bad at affective forecasting. There's a big difference between dopamine and serotonin, what we think is going to create reward and what actually does. And of course, inevitably, that's going to lead to some regret. So we could tease this out in a bunch of different ways, but maybe we start with what you typically see as common regrets right, throughout the course of somebody participating in the study, and then step back and say, how can we get better at affective forecasting so ideally there's less of those regrets?
2: Yeah, great question. So we asked our participants when they were in their 80s if they had regrets, and almost all of them did and most of those regrets centered on relationships. They said that they didn't pay attention enough to relationships. They spent too much time at work and prioritized that over family. There was another variation that in particular relationships, they weren't kind enough or didn't attend enough. So really important idea here too, that I hope we can come back to this idea about attention, that late in life, people recognize that they Put their attention, their presence and attention on things that were less important than the things that they realized they should have prioritized. So those are the kinds of regrets that people have. It's normative to have regrets. Dan Pink has done some great work recently on regrets. And we all have regrets. So it's very hard to avoid regrets in life. But this notion of trying to prioritize what's important for you. So thinking hard, reflecting on what's important to you and trying to figure out a path towards that. Before you just let life pass you by, life goes quickly if you do it on automatic pilot. So we want to prioritize our time and attention to the things that are most important. Not just attention, but intention. It's intention. Exactly. Exactly. They're both important, but this is about intention. Yeah. Yeah. And affective forecasting, most of your listeners, it sounds like may know this, but this is this idea that we can predict what's going to make us happy. And it turns out we're not so good at it that we think, for example, talking to strangers is a waste of our time and likely to make us end up being unhappy and feeling rejected. And that's because we tend to overemphasize the threat of social rejection that we worry all sorts of we get in our head and we worry people aren't going to find us interesting or they're going to think we're uncool or something and they won't be interested in talking to us. So we overemphasize that as opposed to the potential benefits and the benefits people find when they're forced to talk to strangers is they have a good time and they learn something new and they feel that kind of jolt of energy. So our first instincts often aren't correct. That's particularly important when it comes to affective forecasting. These are kind of the initial impulsive reactions that we have. And part of the goal in writing the book is to help people step back a bit, reflect with the tools that we talked about to try and think about, well, okay, if I don't always go with my first instinct, if I step back and think about what's really important, and maybe I hope it's going to be connections are going to be in there somewhere, what can I do to nurture and cultivate those relationships? In different types of relationships, right? All of them. All of them. I've been working as an educator at a university for 26 years. And before that, I was at a bigger university in Boston. And what a nice place to work because I'm embedded in all sorts of connections with other students who are many decades younger than me, keep me both feeling young and teaching me new ideas. When I walk around campus, I get to have conversations with people. So there are all sorts of connections that can be important. And leaning into them, we derive more of those benefits for sure. So, yeah, given the general overview here, Mark,
0: of some general strategies people could employ, let's try and get a specific one on the table for listeners to take away. I mean, one I really liked about trying to avoid regret was where you look at a picture of yourself about half your age, and, and you really emphasize focus on the picture, you know, imagine what it was like, You're trying to remember what it was like to be that age, be that person, and ask yourself, what do you regret Yeah. since then, right? So, any other, I mean, you can elaborate further on that one if you want, but any other strategies for trying to avoid regrets and also for improving effective forecasting?
2: Yeah, so I want to talk about that strategy a little bit, but I also don't want to mislead your listeners that, you know, regret is inevitable, that we're not yeah, going to live a perfect sure. life, there are going to be mistakes that we make, but we want to try and prioritize the precious time that we have for the things that are important. That's what our goal is here. Part of what I like about that exercise, Bob Walder is my co-author in the book, and Bob and I thought about this as a fun exercise, and we've done this with groups. It serves two purposes. One is the regret idea, thinking back about the things that you hope for, maybe the paths that you went down or the amount of energy you poured into something that, in hindsight, after double those number of years you recognize maybe wasn't so important. It's also a perspective taking task, right? So it's going back and thinking about that younger version of yourself, thinking about how silly I was or what an idiot I was, or maybe how physically what kind of vitality I had at that age that I lack now as I've gotten older. So it's a perspective taking task that I think we can carry with us into other relationships. So when I talk to people who are older than me, They have lived experiences and learned things that I haven't had the opportunity to learn, but we forget that often. We see the most obvious thing, which is maybe they're having trouble opening a door that's really heavy, as opposed to remembering all of the experiences that they carry into that moment. So thinking about where we were when we were half our age is also an important perspective-taking task that allows us to think about the differences at different points in our lifespan. So When I was half my age, I was about 30, I was about to have children, my life was about to change in ways that I couldn't possibly have expected. And it's helpful for me to remember how crazy those days were, having a family, working hard, trying to be a professor. It kind of humbles me and gives me some renewed respect for people who are going through those challenges now, which are very different than my life. My kids are grown up now, and I'm in a different place than I was half of my lifetime ago. Mm kind of a
1: balance or teeter-totter again between future casting and retro casting right trying to enhance your future by looking at the past it sounds like
2: yeah yeah it's in many ways like we do as historians right we learn from the past we don't want to repeat the errors of the past but it's also a kind of respect that the situation in my life was just different 30 years ago than it is now the context was very different i live within two miles of where i lived 30 years ago But my life has changed in fundamental ways.
1: So somebody does this kind of looks back in the past, right? This kind of retrospective, they gain some insights and reflections from it. They combine that with how they're thinking about the future. And they get to the point where they say maybe some learned helplessness or some pessimism, like it's too late for that. I can't do anything about it now, right? What would you say to them that, that you articulate so lovely in the book?
2: So we have a whole chapter we devote to this idea. It's a chapter that we call It's Never Too Late. And I think that the best way to convey it is to just tell a little story about one of the people that we feature. This is a participant. We name him Andrew Deering in the book. And Andrew was one of the least happy individuals in the study. He was quite alone for most of his adult life. He was in a marriage that wasn't satisfying. There wasn't a lot of reciprocity. He didn't feel support and help in that marriage. He did work that was very intricate work with his hands, and he loved his job, but in his 60s, he had to retire because he was aging and just couldn't do that work anymore. And he decided a few years later to go to a gym, partly on the advice of a doctor that he needed to watch out for his health. He also separated from his wife at that time, so he was at, in many ways, his lowest point. He lost his work. He was transitioning out of a marriage. But he went to a gym, and at the gym, what he noticed is that the same people were coming every day at the time that he would go, which was the morning, and that he recognized the faces, they would nod to each other, and over time, they started talking to each other, and they realized they had a shared interest in old movies, which he loved, Mm -hmm. and he got them to come over to his house and to watch old movies with him. This is in his late 60s now, and a few years after that, in his 70s, the study went back and interviewed him. And we were used to this question and answer with him. You know, Andrew, do you have friends in your life? He had answered no for 50 years. And this time when we said, Andrew, do you have friends? He said several. So this is a man who changed his life around in the 70s. We often change during transitions. So he left his marriage. He was retiring. So this was an important transition for him. Some of it was serendipity. He was lucky he was in that gym and had repeated exposure to people every day. That's how we make friends, as we see people on a regular basis, often doing activities with them. But people can do this intentionally as well. He knew he needed more connections in his life, so maybe he was driven at a less conscious level to do that. But we can also do this ourselves. So older people retiring, really important to reform your social group to find new playmates that maybe you had at work that you now need to find outside of work we need to do that intentionally. It really is never too late. It doesn't matter whether it's because of your childhood or the genes that you may have been given. People change. That's what we see in the study of people's entire lives.
1: I've been told, and I'm curious if you agree with us that the importance of at least friendship, but maybe relationships in general tends to have this U-shaped curve. And I hear a little bit of that in the way you were describing that that case study or scenario. And, and for our listeners, U-shape, just really important when we're young, teenagers, right? High school, college, those sorts of things, generalizing here, of course maybe dips a bit during career, you have your families, like you've said a couple of times, you get busy with things and it tends to kind of rise again as we age. Do you see
2: a lot of that in the study participants? So what I would say is I would just shift our language a little bit. It's not that it's unimportant in middle Mm -hmm. age, but we're often doing so many things that it's hard to Mm -hmm. maintain lots of connections. So we're focused a lot on our families. We're often trying to get ahead at work. So our networks kind of shrink a bit at that age. They actually shrink again as we get older. So one of the remarkable things about older people, if you think about what it's like to be old Your body is beginning to fall apart. You have physical limitations. You're facing the prospect of dying at a a point that's not as distant in the future as you thought about when you were younger. And your friends might be leaving because they're having physical problems or they might be dying. So our social networks naturally grow smaller as we get Mm -hmm. older. But older people have a kind of emotional wisdom that allows them to maximize what they get out of relationships. So Mm -hmm. they grow slightly happier as they age. So I think in middle age, we need relationships just as much. It's just there's so much going on that it's hard to prioritize them. And that may be part of why the most common finding is the happiness curve has a U-shape as well. With the Mm. nadir, the bottom point being in middle age, there's just a lot going on for people. And some people find themselves stuck in a rut at that point.
1: Mm. Yeah, I love that reframe. Thanks for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've definitely found that as I get older, I now make plans with friends ages in advance. Even like, say sometimes in these text messages earlier, actually, one of them I said, look, I know that it's ages away, but I'm finding as I get older, I've got to make plans like yeah. two months ahead, Yeah, friends with children and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It does take a lot of work and mm-hmm. time, a lot more energy, but totally worth it. Yeah. Anyway, Mark, we have a signature question that we ask all of our guests. That's our final question for each show. We inevitably have titled it The Flourishing Question, and it's this. What is the one lesson on flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with, and what might be a practical step for putting that lesson into action?
2: Yeah, so I think this is a lesson that both comes from our research. It's one that I take personally as well. I've, I've sort of grown to appreciate and grown into it that we need to really lean into our relationships. They're the critical piece in helping us flourish both emotionally and physically, and part of that leaning in means really giving the time to them that they deserve so planning in the way that you're describing john making those dates with friends and putting them in your calendar and keeping them and when we're with people really being present our attention is such a valuable resource so giving people the gift of our attention and our presence is such a wonderful thing we feel it it's becoming less and less common because we're so distracted by so many things but if we can give others that gift of our attention and our curiosity I think we benefit from that as well. So that would be the lesson I would leave. Great. Beautiful. Love them.
1: Mark, so the book is The Good Life Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. We hope everyone picks it up that's listening to this, right? It's Absolutely wonderful. It's just kind of overflowing I think with really good insights and, and practical steps. Where else can people interact with you or Bob or learn more about the study or get more information that might help them and, and enhance their
2: relationships? Sure. so the book is available everywhere. Yeah, we have a website for the book called the goodlifebook.com with hyphens between all those words, but you'll find it if you search for the Good Life book. I have an academic website. I'm also on LinkedIn. Bob Waldinger had a a viral TED talk that talks about some of these Mm -hmm. ideas six or seven years ago. That's worth 12 minutes Mm -hmm. of your life to listen to that TED talk. So that's another good next step for people who are curious about learning more. Great,
1: Yeah, we'll make sure to get that TED talk
2: in the show notes as well. I think it's the ninth most watched TED talk ever, Yeah, that one. And talk about forecasting. When Bob practiced that talk for me, I said to Bob, I think this might work. (laughs) <laughs> that talk has been watched by 44 million people since wow. he gave it. So it's wow. incredible. Yeah, that is incredible. Well, Mark,
1: listen, we are deeply, deeply appreciative of the time. We know you're you're busy. You got your hands in a lot of things and you're doing a lot of shows. And we appreciate that you were willing to include ours
2: and in the long list here. Such a pleasure. Really interesting to talk to you. I appreciate all the questions. It was it was nice to chat. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mark.
0: Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show.
1: If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd
0: also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete. We can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.